welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? The song you hear is a live recording of a group called No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, being led by Mr. Daryl J. Walker. We are so grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that following Jesus in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. This is Reverend Dan Dunlap living in the land of the Cheyenne and Arapaho peoples, which settlers call Denver, Colorado. And Margaret Ernst living in the land of Cherokee peoples, where settlers call Nashville, Tennessee. And finally, Nicola Torbett living on Ohlone land near the formal, former village of Huchin, which is now known as Oakland, California. As you might have already guessed, this is a special episode today. We have three of our podcast contributors gathered on Zoom today to talk about Thanksgiving. Some of us celebrate it, some of us don't, and we know that many Christian churches commemorate the national holiday in one way or the other. So we decided to have a conversation together about it and offer it to all of you. This is a bit of an experiment and we love to talk to each other, so we'll see how it goes. To get ready, we asked each other these three questions. How did you learn the truth about Thanksgiving? What kinds of practices do churches, religious institutions participate in that perpetuate and legitimize the colonizing narrative of Thanksgiving? What are alternatives we could practice instead of celebrating Thanksgiving? And what are resources in our tradition that support that? So as we dive in, we wanted to set the stage by sharing what we know about the myth and truth of Thanksgiving. As you might suspect, the story is a lot more complicated and not nearly as magnanimous as the version most of us learned in elementary school. It appears from the historical record that the pilgrims did celebrate their first successful harvest in 1621, a year after they first arrived at Plymouth Rock. The harvest was a big deal since the community had nearly starved to death the previous year when they found that the wheat that they had brought with them could not take root in the rocky soil. Only with the help of local Wampanoag people, and especially one man named Squanto, did the settlers learn how to grow corn. Some accounts of that first settler harvest celebration suggest that Squanto was invited, along with the Wampanoag chief, Massasoit, and possibly a few others as part of a treaty negotiation that gave the settlers the right to remain on that plot of land and to pledge mutual protection. 
Another account, though, this one by contemporary Wampanoag historian Ramona Peters, suggests that the natives had heard gunshots and cannonball firings and went to the settlement to investigate, fearing that the settlers were instigating a battle against them. When a translator explained that, no, this was a celebration of the harvest, 90 Wampanoag camped out nearby to make sure that that remained true. And while they were there, they hunted deer, dust. There were traditions of hospitality and help anyone who needed it within that tribe. So that's what we know, sort of, about that first mostly mythical feast, which was never called Thanksgiving. What happened in November 1621, by 1637, the Pilgrims and other Puritans were waging war on their former hosts. That year, English and Dutch mercenaries ambushed a group of more than 700 sleeping Pequot Indians who were gathered to celebrate one of their six annual Thanksgiving celebrations, the Green Corn Festival. After ordering the Pequot people to come out of the longhouse where they were sleeping, the English and the Dutch killed those who came out and the rest, mostly women and children, they burned alive. The next day, the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony declared a day of thanksgiving to God to celebrate the slaughter. John Mason, the man responsible for this massacre, wrote in a brief history of the Pequot War the following words. He refers to himself in this passage in the third person. Immediately stepping into the wigwam where he had been before, they brought out a firebrand and putting it in the mats with which they were covered, set the wigwams on fire. And when it was thoroughly kindled, the Indians ran as men most dreadfully amazed. And indeed, such a dreadful terror did the Almighty let fall upon their spirits, that they would fly from us and run into the very flames where many of them perished. John Mason continues saying, God was above them, who laughed his enemies and the enemies of his people to scorn, making them as a fiery oven. And thus were the stout-hearted spoiled, having slept their last sleep, and none of their men could find their hands. Thus did the Lord judge among the heathen, filling the place with dead bodies." A second day of Thanksgiving was declared by a settler churches to celebrate an especially successful raid against the Pequot in what is now Stamford, Connecticut. During that Thanksgiving feast, the heads of murdered natives were kicked around the streets. Killings like this increased and it became custom to continue to celebrate the massacres in the form of Thanksgiving meals. The severed head of a Wampanoag chief was mounted on a stake in the colonial village and kept there on display for 24 years as the killings mounted, with each major slaughter marked by a Thanksgiving declaration. It wasn't until 1863 that Thanksgiving became a national holiday, 
declared as such by President Abraham Lincoln, perhaps as a way <clears throat> of offering up a mythological story of unity in the face of a bitterly divided country. Ironically, he established the holiday the same week he ordered troops to march against a starving band of Sioux Indians in Minnesota, and one year after he had 38 Dakota men hanged for war crimes. The Thanksgiving myth is more than just a distortion of what happened on one particular day in 1621. It is a major ideological tool for covering up the genocide of native peoples by European settlers throughout the country. So let's talk about all this, y'all. Let's start with the, with the first question. And we, for, I mean, before we dive in, I just want to thank folks who are listening as we have uh, this is an experiment with Zoom to try this conversation together. So there might be some funky sound stuff. So thanks for your patience and, as we continue this conversation together. So um, how, did, how did you learn about the truth of Thanksgiving? Who wants to start? I can go. Uh, this is Nicola. And um, for me, it's relatively recent, actually. Um, I have been living in what is now known as Oakland for about 10 years. And it really wasn't until I moved here to the Bay Area that I was exposed to um, the truth about Thanksgiving. And that was through the work of Native peoples still living in this part of the country. Um, there is an incredible uh, sunrise ceremony that happens every year on Thanksgiving morning on Alcatraz Island um, that is a commemoration of the slaughters and uh, a prayer, a prayer ceremony um, for uh, Native peoples today and, and indigenous sovereignty. And it's really an amazing experience. So I've gone to that a couple times. I um, also last year spent the early part of November at Standing Rock. And that was when it really, uh, it really just became impossible for me to celebrate this holiday. Um, coming back from that experience and seeing that the, um, the war on indigenous sovereignty and even indigenous survival in this country is still going on. Um, I just couldn't come home and eat turkey and mashed potatoes in the same way. Mm. Wow. I don't think I realized you were at Standing Rock at that time. That's, that's powerful. Um, how about you, Margaret? So I first wanted to say that I grew up about 10 minutes from where these events happened with the Pequot War uh, near Sanford, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And growing up, uh, as we learned the pilgrims and Indians narrative, um, there was definitely never any sort of connection to the fact that we lived near people, uh, near the Pequot people's land or on that land. And so it has only been in the past few years as I have also been exposed to 
narratives from Indigenous people's perspectives that I even knew that all of this history happened literally on the ground that I was raised in. And that has been jarring and dissonant. Um, and I feel like I'm just beginning the tip of the, sort of the tip of the iceberg of beginning to understand what that really means for me um, and what it means to me in my own relationship with my own ancestors who were, were also present in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in and around the Massachusetts and Connecticut area uh, in the early 17th century. So how, in terms of how I've actually learned this truth, it has admittedly and fully honestly really only been um, in the last few years of, of research on my part. Mm. <coughs> Thanks, Margaret. I, um, as I've thought about this question, I, I, I think it's been a long um, journey. I've, um, for many years, I lived in the Southwest and um, had the, the honor of being taught by um, indigenous folks from, from Taos and some of the other um, Northern New Mexico uh, Pueblo people there. And but I don't really remember like a specific, like this is what actually happened. There was just bits of pieces of, you know, as I gradually sort of understood the history of this country, just like this probably did not go down the way we thought it did um, until I, it would have been 10 years ago, um, probably about right now uh, in my uh, class at ILIF, um Christianity in the Modern World. One of the professors uh, is an Osage um, elder, uh, professor of American Indian spirituality, and was the, the co-creator and co-teacher of uh, Christianity in the Modern World. And the quarter that I took that class was also the quarter that um, uh, 11 of us from ILIF students and alums got arrested protesting Columbus Day. Uh, the Columbus Day Parade here, which I've talked about on the podcast a couple of times, um, especially um, just a few weeks ago around that holiday. And I just, I remember sitting in class and we, we had been, um, we had been reading uh, Dr. Tinker, that, that was my professor, um, Dr. George Tinker, um, his book, Missionary Conquest. And realizing, kind of similarly to you, Margaret, that my, my own, uh, some of my own ancestors were um, those early settlers um, in Massachusetts. They lived in, they were in Salem um, and uh, in, in other places around Massachusetts. Um, and so, like, realizing, oh, they were these people that Dr. Mm -hmm. Tinker is talking about in this book and talking about um, in the, the, the early development of, of colonization on this land, like those, those were my ancestors and having that same kind of dissonant um, discomfort feeling of what, what do I do with this information now? And I think it was me who asked him, uh, who asked Dr. Tinker at the end of class one day, um, I think it was me. If we've been lied to about so many other things like what are we being lied to about, about Thanksgiving? And uh, he 
offered up some of some of the resources that helped us to craft that introductory bit that we just shared with with folks who are listening. Um, and ever since then, uh, it's become increasingly uncomfortable to me to to celebrate the holiday. And now I just now I don't. Um, I tried to like well. All my friends have the day off. That never happens. Let's all get together and have a meal. But we won't call it Thanksgiving. But I had a realization a few years ago that even doing that and going out and buying, you know, whatever our contribution was, was still contributing to, like, the the capitalist um, legitimization of it. And so... I decided at that point I couldn't, I couldn't celebrate it anymore. So um, I'm grateful to Dr. Tinker for, for many things, including uh, setting me on, on that path. Um, so are there any thoughts that folks have as we've shared those stories just around this first question? I really like what you're saying, Anne, about how even if we don't call it Thanksgiving, and this is something I've also just been thinking about this year, wrestling with, you know, what feels like a missed opportunity to spend time with friends and family. Um, But even purchasing the stuff, the word that came, the phrase that came to mind as you were talking is the Thanksgiving industrial complex, right? (laughs) Like there's actually a lot of money that is made by agribusiness. <laughs> the Thanksgiving industrial complex? Oh my goodness. <laughs> like it's, it's really agribusiness that profits from this, right? On land that belong to indigenous people. So thank you for that. I, mm. I just, uh, that's helping me in thinking through this. And also I just want to echo my, my own gratitude for um, the indigenous people here and in other places that I'm connected to that have um, taught me and provoked my, my consciousness around this, um, what is actually a day of mourning for uh, many indigenous people in this country. Yeah. I was thinking too, as I was listening to, to each of us, you know, who are folks who have really deep commitments around trying to understand our history and how, um, for, for each of us, it's been perhaps for me the longest, but for, you know, a, a relatively recent uncovering that we had to go dig for in some ways. Um, and then the, how that speaks to me of just how pervasive and hidden and powerful the dominant myth, uh, of this, of this holiday really is. Yeah. I was thinking about that too, in terms of the incredible power of the dominant narrative. Um, as I was reflecting about, you know, celebrating Thanksgiving with my family, literally on the land where these um, where the massacres took place, and I think upon reflecting on that, I was reminded of the particular way that racism functions in the in the north specifically or in, in New England and in the places where I grew up um, because of the such a systematic 
um, and massive genocide that occurred almost gives a pass for white settlers in you know, what we know as the North today to, to not face their history or not face our history because yeah. there's the, the, the narrative has been so dominant to, to almost completely wipe out, you know, any signs, any signs that indigenous people are still there and that their ancestors are still there and that their spirits are still there. And um, I think that is, leads to this sort of particularly nostalgic, uh, or like, the, yeah, there, there's a way that there's particularly nostalgic um, mm. mythology about New England history almost because of the reality. Mm. Yeah, I, I've not ever lived in, or hardly even spent, uh, let's see, not spent any time in New England ever. Um, I'm from the South and have lived out West where indigenous presence is still fairly felt uh, and, and alive and vibrant in, in many spaces. Um, so that I'd have to think about that, like what that would. Um, yeah. And the, the way in which um, Northerners, uh, like to sort of lord it over us Southerners for, for our racism. Um, that's uh, obvious because it's still present in a way as, as you're describing that, that it's, that's not in the North is, is a problem. <laughs> hmm. It also just strikes me as a, a lead into our second question because I'm sitting here um, down the hill from a church that is named Plymouth. I don't say the full name of the church. I don't want to call them out in particular because there are many Plymouth whatever, whatever churches, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Here in Denver, and there's Denver. Plymouth, there's a Salem, there's a Mayflower. <laughs> there's another Plymouth up the, up the highway. I mean, yeah. Especially They're if you're everywhere. a UCC, you know, with that congregationalist history. Plymouths and Salem's and Mayflowers and Plymouths and Pilgrims and yeah. 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 And these are progressive churches, a lot of them, um, mm -hmm. but we're still celebrating this particular romantic narrative that took place in New England. Um, it's very interesting to me and something that I think the church as a whole could be reflecting on. What does it mean that we've kept these names? Yeah. So just to reiterate that second question then for, for folks who are listening, um, that's what kinds of practices do churches and religious institutions participate in that perpetuate and or legitimize the colonizing narrative of Thanksgiving? So that would be one of them. <laughs> um, I think a lot about uh, how like an uncritical biblical interpretation um, continues to support the ways that colonizing narratives show up. Uh, um, actually, did I talk about that last week in the last podcast that I did? But I've tackled that a few times. Like we can't celebrate 
these conquest narratives, where do they show up in uh, Joshua's story of getting the people into the promised land or Jesus telling people to go and, you know, preach to, to all the nations and that we have to really push back on that. But that's, that's another place I see that it shows up. Mm-hmm. I think uh, another thing that comes to mind is um, that we are still celebrating the harvest in a way that doesn't acknowledge that we didn't make it on our own. Mm. Uh, to me, one of the one of the interesting things I learned um, in doing the research for this podcast is, you know, how basically our ancestors, my ancestors in this country, would have starved to death um, yep. if they had not been taught by indigenous people how to grow corn on this land. And there are so many ways. Like I think one of the things that I've thought about in terms of alternative Thanksgiving practices is, well, gratitude is good, right? Like being grateful for our blessings. Yeah. But, but can we talk about our blessings in such a way um, that actually we acknowledge the land on which those blessings have grown, the people whose labor went into the production of them, you know, that, it, that we aren't self-made people. And I think sometimes our churches talk about gratitude in a way that perpetuates a narrative of, um, you know, we, we are, are blessed because we've done all this on our own or something. And I think I, I resonate with that too, Claude, that how um, it can be hard to be aware of the of underlying prosperity gospel of that, which actually mm-hmm. I think goes as far back as the, the um, the statement that we read in the beginning about the the brief history of the Pequot War by John Mason, who was one of the the massacreers, uh, that's the word, one who's participated <laughs> in the massacre, because there's this strong um, strong narrative within his words and also within um, what Governor Bradford, who was the colonial governor of Massachusetts at that time. Um, there's a strong theme of, of thanks for these blessings, right? Thanks for the blessings that came directly from the spot from violence. Mm. And mm. I think as I was you know, preparing for this conversation, I was particularly troubled by uh, and really challenged by the incredibly theological lens that men like Mason, Bradford, uh, and others in, in, in their community were justifying this, the violence with. Um, and I think that even though that might not, that, you know, that's not like the UCC church, for instance, that I work for, right, that, mm. that Thanksgiving event um, is not going to lift up the kind of um, strongly anti-Indigenous narrative that they do in these in these works from 200 years ago, I think that just erasing the overt racism doesn't quite get to the underlying um, assumption, right, that God blesses us uh, because of what we're able to extract. Mm. We're able to extract from the land, we're able to extract um, through sort of winning out, right, and being the lucky ones. 
I say lucky ones, obviously, with with major quotations there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think about, um, even in, in our progressive white churches today, the, the way that we talk about our blessings. Um, I'm so blessed to, to have these benefits that other, you know, less fortunate people don't have. And I think what you said, like the blessings that come from violence and that, um, I don't know what the word would be, an, an ignorance or a, or a something of like, as white folk, the benefits that we gain from the system come from violence. And yet we, we are most often calling them blessings. Um, having healthcare, having access to food, having shelter that, uh, especially as middle and upper class uh, white folks, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that all of us on this call are, but um, for middle and upper class uh, churches to, to be naming blessings with that, um, without that critical analysis that these privileges come from violence not only historically, but also now. Um, uh, and when we participate in, um, you know, I was just, I just made like a little list of just Thanksgiving things that churches do. Like we have these the interfaith Thanksgiving services and um, food baskets, you know, Thanksgiving food baskets. Um, service projects where we'll go and serve soup at the soup kitchen and then go have our Thanksgiving meal. And then it's all in this context of like, as you were saying, you know, Nicola of like gratitude and like Thanksgiving and, and unity, some of these, you know, services and well, can't we, you know, we're celebrating our unity together, but, but the, the myth that that's all built on is a lie. And it's mm -hmm. a lie that's rooted in violence and in a covering up of the violence and, I would just, I would want us to think about how we can like be honest about that history and do something different. Yeah, I, I'm really um, struck. I, I learned not too long ago, it's in the last year that our church is actually, um, built on what was a significant village site. We're near Lake Merritt in Oakland. Wow. And, um, and that we are about uh, 200 yards maybe from a shell mound. And I'd be curious to know how many other churches also are in that position that these churches were built kind of deliberately on top of native sacred sites. Mm. And so when we have our interfaith, Thanksgiving celebrations, are we having them on top of the ancestors of indigenous people? You know, I think that's another thing for us to just be thinking about. And what does it mean? How can we use that space in a way that is resisting the, the romanticized and, and untrue narrative of Thanksgiving? You know, it's not that we don't want to gather and talk about that, but we have to be telling the difficult truth yeah. about what it is that we're quote unquote, celebrating.
Uh, it's deep. There are other practices that y'all thought of before we move on to the, although I feel like we said a lot. Mm-hmm. I've been hearing a lot of people asking about, um, are there schools anywhere um, that are doing a, a good job of teaching about Thanksgiving in a way that is honest? And I think that's a place where, um, you know, many churches have schools associated with yeah. them. And I don't know, you know, but that would be something for churches to think about too. Like how is that narrative being taught? How, yeah, how are we retelling that story? Like even in sermons, not the, this, yeah, 10 years ago, um, I heard a sermon, the church where I was interning, it was in the aftermath of, of the arrests um, that the pastor definitely knew about. Um, uh, and I had been open about with the congregation and, and the reasons why, and there had been conversations. And he preached the sermon about, um, I don't know if it was, uh, might've been Christ the King Sunday. I was, I was trying to remember when, but using the, uh, it wasn't the lectionary cause I think he used revelation, um, new heavens and a new earth and how the first Thanksgiving was trying to, was an embodiment of the new heavens and the new earth. And, um, isn't it unfortunate that it didn't stay that way? <laughs> I was just sitting behind him in the pulpit, trying not to, trying not to lose it. I was like, how, like, how can, like, first of all, like, how can you say this in front of me? <laughs> um, but this, this isn't even true. Like how, how do you not know that this isn't true? And how do we, so like, how do we continue to retell those things? And then, and then my own sort of dismay, I was like, what, what that, what I, uh, I don't want to like claim to understand the experience of folks of color, but my own dismay and like hurt that he would preach that kind of a sermon when I was still like living in the trauma of the rest of, you know, myself and, my friends and, and the violence that we experienced at the hands of the state and trying to defend indigenous sovereignty um, here on stolen indigenous land. Like the thought that like magnify that by a gazillion and you know, what, what indigenous folks must live with every day. So it was, but the retelling of that, like how we lift up that myth, not only in our churches, but, but in other places again of like that, the unity and that the that perfect sweet moment when we were all together and 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 it's not true. Yeah, I mean, I, I when as you mentioned that, I realized that it, it almost functions like an like a Eden myth, right? For for America, mm. kind of, um, this idea of ideal origins that are and even when that myth is used to try to like kind of continuously perfect those relationships with, I think it's, yeah, it's important, right. To first debunk the myth. Um, even, even if one wants to try to deploy it for what seem like um, well-intentioned purposes, I think it starts with telling the truth. Yeah. 
Dr. Tinker says in Missionary Conquest, you know, the well-intentioned white folk were still colonizing and participating in genocide. You know, but it's, so beginning with telling the truth about that, I think is really important. Which would make a nice segue into our last question. <laughs> about um, alternatives. What alternatives could we practice um, instead of celebrating uh, Thanksgiving? And what are some resources in our tradition that, that would support that? Um, last year, uh, I was asked by an indigenous elder here um, uh, uh, where I live in, in Denver and in Cheyenne, Arapahoe land. Um, she is Lakota and had been to Standing Rock. Um, and she asked if I would help her lead um, a 24-hour vigil on Thanksgiving Day um, uh, in, in honor of Standing Rock to bring prayers and songs and whatever um, energy, good energy that people would have uh, uh, to send. Um, and so uh, we, we did that. We, uh, we held it at my partner's church, which has kind of an open and round space, so it worked really well with the table in the center and set up some earth-based ritual that, that I've learned in my um, herbal studies from my own um, like European ancestral heritage and held it open for 24 hours. And folks came solidly from about four in the morning all the way to midnight the next night. We did it from midnight to midnight. And um, we part of the, the earth ritual was to bless water, which then local... Um, uh, indigenous and activists of color from, from here took up to Standing Rock the next time that they went up um, to offer to the camps there. Um, and I just thought, what if, what if we were doing that? Like can, figuring out ways as white people, um, instead of, as you said, Nicola, participating in the Thanksgiving industrial complex with agribusiness, making money off land that was stolen um, and obtained by genocide like what if we were figuring out ways to practice like connecting back to the land where we live um, in ways that don't have to do with ownership or extraction um, but ways that have to do with heart and relationship um, so I've, I've thought about that um, a lot uh, I don't I don't know that we're going to do that again this year but I won't be celebrating but I want to figure out like a way um, you know, I won't go to somebody's house and eat, but like get out in my garden and walk around and connect to the land um, in some way. I really love the story about that vigil. I remember hearing about it actually. Um, and, you know, another thing that we can do is uh, to use our church spaces for teach-ins on that day. Um, mm. We are early in the process now cultivating a closer relationship with the Ohlone people in Oakland. And I can imagine, you know, that that might be a powerful alternative. You know, we could gather together and people come. I think I'm also interested in practices that would give room for people who are along a continuum of, you know, I'm not going to eat turkey <laughs> or 
really want to gather with my family and friends, but I could come in the morning. You know, that's what I love about the 24 hour is that it allows space for people who weren't yet able to say no to grandma's invitation, right. you know, um, but could come in the morning. Uh, so the teaching really interests me. Um, there was an amazing, uh, one of the best Thanksgivings I ever spent was during the Occupy Movement, um, right as there was a lot of ring of consciousness in Occupy Oakland around the use of that language. Mm, and the irony yeah. of liberation movement calling itself Occupy. Yeah. Um, and there was a teach-in uh, that happened on Thanksgiving. Um, and we had food. We fed everybody, you know, but the content was learning the truth about what had happened, not just in New England, but also here uh, with the missions. So um, that, that was a really cool experience. I think something that I'm holding in tension as I think about alternatives is the incredible um, task that as white folks we have at hand of gathering with other white folks and doing the work of grief, of re-education, of repentance, of confession, of telling different stories and learning different stories than we've been taught and helping each other learn new stories. Mm. I think I'm holding in tension the, um, the fact that like <clears throat> remarkable ways to do that, right. Is gathering over meals. <laughs> yeah. In some ways it's the most nourishing opportunity and um, to kind of go beyond talking about Thanksgiving or anything, um, anything else that we might be confronted with, that, with, like going beyond talking about it as kind of an abstract issue, but that's something that really relates to our stories and to our experiences. Um, and tables are great chances for that. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that there are so many white folks, right, who go home for Thanksgiving and many of whom don't or can't or choose not to, right, at the same time, um, or who might be gathering with chosen family around Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm trying to think about the, this, um, you know, what to do with that space that is there and, and happening. Um, and that is like sort of like rare time where like within mainstream white culture, there's actually space, somewhat of a space held for reflection. Um, I mean, in my, in my family, um, we didn't do a lot of intentional reflecting around the dinner table, but the one time of the year we did it was Thanksgiving, <laughs> uh, kind of going around and sharing what we're thankful for. And so yeah, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just thinking about what does it mean to <clears throat> have a different kind of gathering um, that is about about learning the truth, you mm -hmm. know, and whether that happens on Thanksgiving Day itself, 
um, or whether and how, how, you know, much it relies on agribusiness or not, right? Or <laughs> whether or not there's turkey, whether or not there's cranberry sauce, whether or not it's potatoes, <laughs> right? Um, that like, you know, sh- sharing, sharing stories over a meal feels like a vital um, space for cultural work to happen. And in terms of what like resources we have in our tradition for that, I was also thinking about the fact that this idea of like coming to table, right, is so, um, so deep within Christian tradition mm. and that the, the Eucharistic table and the communion table has been both a place where stories are told um, of, sort of what God has done or what, you know, we understand God to have done and also what God will do, this kind of eschatological imagination. And that table also has been a tool of empire and also at its heart was um, sort of a site of anti-imperial memory. And so I don't know if this is leading to any kind of concrete <laughs> suggestions for what folks should do, but I think I'm, I'm, what I'm holding is this importance of, of memory um, and eating together and, um, and really just sinking into the um, into, uh, anti-imperial sides of our traditions and the places where we gather at table. Hmm. Yeah, I, I appreciate that reminder of that like we we're actually I think in some ways as white folk we're we're bereft of of cultural traditions that bring us together um and so we're handed Thanksgiving and like people literally will travel across the country to go back home to their family um for better or for worse we've all seen those movies right (laughs) but um there's something powerful about that 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 wanting to be in community and that's 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 all we're offered in this culture is um and so how can we like use the tradition against itself maybe in a way um to do like the teachings or the conversations or the uh in yeah in some ways maybe asking churches to like figure out alternatives to to participating in interfaith Thanksgiving services is, is maybe even the, the easier ask than um, turning down grandma's invitation as, as Nicola said, right. Is because I think we do long for community and spaces to tell stories and, and be together. And our, our white dominant culture just just does not offer us those kinds of spaces. In fact, I think they want to keep us from those kinds of spaces so we don't end up telling each other these stories, right? Um, so all this pressure on this one day to get it right and the perfect turkey, and I don't even like turkey, so maybe that's why it was easy for me to like, eh, I don't, I don't, I don't need a meal. Somebody send me some uh, some warm rolls and I'll be good. But um, but I think that's really important, like. Maybe that's part of what we want to reclaim and, and uncover and use the meal, as you said, as like the, that site of just really digging into our traditions, anti-imperial roots and how storytelling against the empire was, as we've been trying to do on this podcast, for example, um, 
that's deep within our that's deep within our tradition. The prophets do that. Jesus does that. Paul does that. It's it's all throughout um, our sacred texts together. Um, and I think you know along along with those conversations, you know, folks um, like learning the history of where they are. Uh, the history is there, um, especially now. Uh, you know, not so hard to find. Maybe hard to find, but not as hard to find as it used to be with uh, the internet. Um, if you can find trustworthy places to look, but to you know, who lived where, where on this land, and who still lives? Um, not to put it in past tense, but but who still are the people who belonged to this land uh, where we now live um, and move? Like, what what are their names? Um, uh, what's the story of here? What's the story of Denver? Um, you know, and of Oakland and of Nashville and of Stanford and, and how did it come to be? And what do we do with that knowledge once we, once we have it? Um, and then using that table space, I think would be powerful. I know we need to, to wrap up because our dear Margaret needs to get to, um, get to, to class at Vanderbilt Divinity School. We would not want to anger her professors. Um, uh, although hopefully they would be understanding of such a task as this. Um, but I wanted to see if there were any other uh, thoughts on that last question um, before moving to our call to action, which we've sort of been doing already, but some specific ideas that we have for you. Um, any other thoughts? I think I, I did have one point, or not whole point, but just, just final thought: <laughs> this tension between um, re, retooling and um, and finding resistance traditions within this tradition, while also <clears throat> um, getting the invitations right from our families or friends or or thing with that. I think a, a really a hard challenge, I think, for white anti-racist folks in particular is to think about what a, what a love ethic is in this work and what mm. love really means. And um, a friend of mine uh, recently blessed me with a, a challenge and um, that I'm so thankful for. Um, his name is Gray and he's a uh, black trans Jewish organizer with Ben the Ark right now located in Philly. And he told me, Margaret, don't let white nationalists have the monopoly on loving white people. Huh. Wow. Wow. So as we are in this time of white supremacists actively organizing our families, and we think about family traditions, I am, I am challenged uh, to think about this, this multiple layers of work. Um, that requires an expansion of um, my own self-compassion and of my heart. Mm. In complex ways. Hmm. Thanks for that. You gave me something to think about. Yeah, thank you. I would just add one more, one more bit to that, and then we'll go to the call to action, which I th somehow I think related to that. And as I'm thinking about my own, um, because uh, my partner is going to be out of the country, and so I'm just I'm assuming that I will just be spending the day by myself, and like actually what a white individualist thing that that is to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and I don't, I, I don't know what I want to do about it this year, but, but I can, I can see the temptation to, well, I've, I've got the right answer, so I'm not going to participate and withdraw myself from community um, instead of trying to figure out how to build like collective alternatives somehow um, that are rooted in that, in that love ethic, uh, Margaret, that you were just describing and having, um, so I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking about those, all those things that I, I, uh, like just watching that in myself, like, well, I'm just gonna isolate. Um, but is, is there a different way to do that? That doesn't also like replicate that kind of individualism. That's also, uh, uh, part of whiteness and white supremacy culture. Um, like what would that alternative be? I'm going to keep thinking about all of that. So. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you saying that both of you, um, because I also have that temptation and my temptation is I could use that day to get a lot of work done. <laughs> you know, my individualist workaholic kind of, um, orientation. And I'm really thinking, hearing both of you about how much Jesus taught us not to put the letter of the law above community relationships yeah. and being together. And um, yeah, I, you've given me a lot to think about too. Hmm. Well, we've given each other a lot to think about, and we hope that folk, folks who are listening, we've given you all um, some stuff to think about as well. And so Margaret's going to take it from here with our um, call to action for you today. So that's a lot to take in. And for our call to action this week, let's start first with recognizing the challenge and discomfort of what we're asking to rethink the Thanksgiving holiday, or maybe even not celebrate it at all. That can feel like a huge task for a cultural tradition that is so deep in our lives. So first, let's just notice our own resistance, our own discomfort, and ask that troubling in our soul what it wants to teach us. From there, let's start thinking about how we'd like to mark the holiday this year in light of this information. Maybe you're ready to start a conversation about alternative ways to mark the day within your congregation or community. Maybe you're ready to start a conversation about the communal Thanksgiving table. Whatever you're ready to do, find some friends and do it together. In addition to a Thanksgiving-related call to action, here's another idea. You can download the hashtag Honor Native Land guide from the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. Now, that name, the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, sounds like a government agency, but it's <laughs> actually a people-powered department, a grassroots action network, inciting creativity and social imagination to shape a culture of empathy, equity, and belonging. Here's a little blurb from within the guide about what you will find there. Created in partnership with Native allies and organizations, the guide offers context about the practice of acknowledging Native land, 
give step-by-step instructions for how to begin wherever you are, and provides tips for moving beyond acknowledgement into action. You can download that guide right now from the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture website, and you'll find that listed in the transcript. Thanks, as always, for joining us today uh, for this experiment of a, of a group conversation. Um, let us know how your action goes. Whatever you decide to do, we'd love to hear from you all. Um, you can do that by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. And we'll be back next week with the wonderful Nicola Torbett, uh, giving us a resistance word for the text for December 3rd. December 3rd? It can't be, that can't be right. December 3rd already? Um, anyway, <laughs> you can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org slash podcast. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas, and transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. Finally, a big thanks to our sound editor this week, Paul Stewart. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, we are Anne. And Margaret, who's I'm still with us. <laughs> and Margaret. There we go. And Nicola. Thanks so much, everyone.